Hello, my name is Nikolai Humphreys. Welcome to a very special episode of the Lancet Oncology Podcast, recorded on Monday, 26th of September, at the 2011 European Multidisciplinary Cancer Congress meeting in Stockholm, Sweden, where today the Lancet Oncology launched its commission on delivering affordable cancer care in high-income countries. I shall now pass you over to editor of the Lancet Oncology, David Collinridge, who earlier chaired the launch of the commission. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the launch of the Lancet Oncology Commission on delivering affordable cancer care in high-income countries. Now, as I think we're all increasingly aware, the cost of cancer care and healthcare generally is rapidly increasing. The complexities and demands on healthcare services are mushrooming at an incredible rate, and health services are unable to keep up. This is putting enormous pressures on budgets and is actually slowly bankrupting many healthcare payers. This jeopardises our basic human right to the access of effective medicine. In fact, just last week in New York at the UN Summit on Non-Communicable Diseases, there was a political declaration signed by many nations calling for universal access to affordable care and effective care. Now, cancer is the number one cause of death in many high-income countries and constitutes one of the biggest challenges medically. How are we going to contend with this challenge in the future? And how are we going to contend with, with it in a way that doesn't jeopardise the lives of many patients? Well, joining us this morning, we have a very prominent uh, number of panellists who will hopefully have all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> so sitting on my widget left, we have a familiar face to everyone here, I think, President of ECHO, Professor Michael Bauman. Michael is a professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology at University Hospital in Dresden, and he's director of the University Cancer Centre and chairman of the Centre for Radiation Research and Oncology. Next to Professor Bellman, we have Professor Peter Naridi. Peter is chairman of the Department of Surgery at Umea University Hospital here in Sweden, a member of the ECHO Board of Directors, and is president of three societies, the European Society of Surgical Oncology, the Scandinavian Surgical Society, and the Swedish Surgical Society. And finally, at the end of the table, we have Professor Richard Sullivan from King's College London, Director of the Centre of Global Oncopolicy, practices at Guy's Hospital, and moreover is the lead author on the Lancet Oncology Commission. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to ask this distinguished panel to talk us through some of the aspects of the Commission and highlight some of the wrap-up points and real solutions and deliverables from it. So to start off, perhaps I'll hand over to Richard to talk a little bit about the overall cost of cancer care, research and cost effectiveness, and pricing and affordability. Richard. Super, David. Thank you very much, and thank you all for being here today. Um, the, I'm going to just highlight some specific pieces out of some of these sections, which I'll just talk about a little bit more in a minute. You just need to be aware that each of these sections was authored by a very distinguished faculty, and the listing is at the back of the Lancet Oncology Commission, so you can see who actually authored those specific sections. So I'm just going to begin by giving you a, a kind of an overview of the cost of cancer care. Um, I'm not going into a lot of detail about the figures, and, and the reason for this is because, in a sense, when we talk about the direct cost of cancer care and the growth in that, it's self-evident, but in a sense the numbers are so huge, it's often difficult to compare. It's a Goldilocks problem. Is this too much, too little, or just about right? If you look at the United States of America at the moment, something like 109 billion US dollars is being spent on direct 
medical cancer care. In EU19, it's 71 billion. But it's not really the absolute amounts that's the key. It's the rate of change. And it's the fact that underlying healthcare systems are growing exponentially in terms of their cost. So in the US, it's nearly 17% of GDP on healthcare. And in Europe, we're getting to an average of 10%. But they're all rising. And the affordability simply is no longer there. The macroeconomic system simply cannot handle that level of expenditure. So the first section, we talk a lot about what are the main drivers to this. And broadly speaking, there are three main drivers. The first is sociodemographic. In developed countries, we're seeing rapidly aging populations, and age being one of the major risk factors for cancer. If you look at 2040, something like 25% on average of the populations are going to be over 65 years old, and that's only going to increase. So that's one of the biggest drivers. The second major drivers to cost is what we call a sort of a techno-cultural. Huge increase, which is fabulous for cancer care, but incredibly difficult to manage from an affordability point of view, in the number of new technologies. And by that, I mean not just medicines here, but also surgical procedures, imaging, radiotherapy, etc. This is all outlined in the Commission. And then finally, when we, we look at this, we're also thinking very much around an area which people often forget, which is the macroeconomics of this. So this is simply the pricing models that we have around our healthcare systems. And in that sense, we have a, a major increase in the cost of our human resources, so these are healthcare professionals, infrastructure costs, all the way through to the cost of individual technologies. And it's those three big domains that are the cost drivers. One of the sections deals um, essentially with what is the role of research in trying to, first of all, understand what these cost drivers are, but also providing the solutions. And Ian Tannock and colleagues led a section dissecting out what our key problems are at the moment with, for instance, um, the people will hear it, ICER, incremental cost-effectiveness ratios. This is how we put a value on many of our technologies. And he makes the point that, first of all, that we have a real problem at the moment. Whilst we have clinical studies with highly embedded biological studies, that's done now as a matter of course. Very few clinical trials and studies have embedded socioeconomic studies. And so we're really missing out on information here. Furthermore, we don't really understand what the true costs are in many of our healthcare systems. Or if the costs are known, they're only known by certain groups. This is what we call the asymmetric information problem. And really within that particular section on research and development, the core there is for putting solutions in of embedding socioeconomic studies as almost part of the course with our clinical research, but also saying to healthcare systems, you start ha you're starting to have to find out what your real fixed costs are, what your variable costs are, and link them to your outcomes. So that's the key messaging from that particular <coughs> section. We also have two sections which sort of fit together here, and it's from the medical oncology <coughs> perspective, led by Gordon McVeigh and colleagues, and from, essentially, it's an industry perspective um, led by David Taylor on the affordability and pricing. And this is quite, going to be quite controversial, I think. You know, on the one hand here, at the moment, we have an incredible range, I'm just focusing on pharmaceuticals at the moment, of what we call these in incremental cost-effectiveness ratios. So let me give you an example here. If you look at, on average, for colorectal cancer, new drugs coming through, you're talking about $22,000 per quality adjusted life year. That ranges all the way up to, in hematological malignancies, $48,000. And something like 6 to 
of medicines coming through at the moment have qualities above 100,000. Now that is just drugs. We know very little about what's happening in biomarkers, imaging and surgery. So that is again the asymmetric information. And one of the solutions around this is first of all that we, we, we need to have Again, more studies around medical oncology about what the true costs are, but we also need to bring together new pricing structures for the way that we actually cost up these technologies. And you will hear calls for, for example, performance-based pricing. Also, developments. This is coverage with evidence development. And so within the Commission, there are a whole range of possible options, all of which actually need to be explored. I don't think this is one-size-fits-all at all. That's certainly what comes out very strongly. So broadly speaking, those are the areas I just want to deal with before handing over back to, to David. Thank you, Richard. Well, we've just heard a good background setting the scene there, and of course the cost of cancer care is much broader than just the cost of medicines and drugs. It's also all the other modalities that go into multidisciplinary care. And so I'd like to hand over to Michael to talk about some of the costs associated with radiotherapy, radiology, nuclear medicine, but also perhaps a little, a few comments about the patient perspective, which is an important component of this equation. Well, in all other fields, then drug development and introducing new drugs into treatment, we also see the same revolution of new options. We see it in surgery with surgical technologies, which are also sometimes technology-driven. We certainly see it in the field of imaging. We see it in the field of radiation oncology where different machinery and techniques are available and also here traditionally new technologies have been innovated so it has been an innovative driven process and uh, it this process is not always or very seldom to be frank uh, involving real cost assessments leading to something like qualities and uh, that is certainly something we have to look into because we are in an area of time where treatments are changing to multidisciplinary treatments we are in middens at times so the patients get different treatments from different angles and all are somehow related to cost and we have a revolution of different treatment options for each patient. So we have to make decisions on which treatments are best for which patients and it's not an all-fits-everybody model, that is for sure, and I think these data need to go into that decision-making. From a patient's perspective, it's very clear and I will feel exactly the same as a patient, that you want the best and the latest treatment where you hope it's giving you uh, access to a better chance of survival, a better quality of life, better coping with symptoms and so on. So that is absolutely justifiable and absolutely correct that a patient will have this perspective and we have to see that perspective also in the whole scenario but we have to look at it in a questions of affordability and fair access to those treatments for everybody. Thank you, Michael. Professor Narini, perhaps you could spend mm -hmm. a few minutes just telling us around, talking around the cost of surgery and perhaps some of the uh, associated costs around individualization of medicine, uh, genomic testing, and such like. 
Yeah, uh, as a surgeon, I think we see many of the cancer patients up front. The, the GP uh, general practitioner might uh, refer the patient to us. But in a world where we get more techniques, like David said, uh, we are better in, 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 uh, in providing good health care so we can operate on more patients. Um, the cost could just grow enormously. And unfortunately also, we could treat a lot of patients without any any use. They will not benefit from what we are doing. So I would say in surgery today there's a big focus on how do we do things less. Uh, let me give you an example on breast cancer where we 20-30 years ago took away the, the completely breast and the lymph nodes in the axilla. Today we rarely take away the breast, we take the tumor and we don't take away all the lymph nodes in the axilla which can give a, a swollen arm. We take only one node and d diagnose that. So let me just come into the early diagnostics. What we hope for and what we want a strategy in surgery for is to take a blood sample instead, not even have to do the surgery in the axilla. So there's a lot of focus on trying to do less. And there are a number of procedures where we have managed to do that. But I think studies, uh, national plans, guidelines, they all have to think about this because that's where we lose quality of life for thousands of patients and also probably millions of, of, of euros. And then the other thing is that an expensive thing, we can take the most expensive way I think we have now is the robot, the robot-assisted laparoscopy. If we don't use it wisely, it will be extremely expensive. It will, each procedure will cost more money. But if we use it wisely, we can use it so much that the, the machine doesn't cost per patient that much anymore. And if we get good enough, we can decrease the complications, the, the, the sickness of the patient, the hospitalization, and, and we actually can, it can become cheaper than doing it the old way. But we have to do studies, we have to have a strategy, and I think uh, as a professional, we really take to t uh, need to take part in this uh, um, health economy system and not let others... Uh, tell us what is too expensive or where we can't do anything to a patient. Thank you, Peter. Well, clearly this is a very large topic area. And perhaps, Richard, you can comment on just wrapping up perhaps one, some of the solutions and deliverables in this area. Thank you very much. Um, I have really three things to say. And um, let me first of all just preface that by saying this is, I think the Commission has recognised this affordability issue for what it is, which is a complex adaptive system. And, and it needs to be treated like that in terms of both the issues and the solutions that we propose in this. Um, just taking what Peter has just said there, that's absolutely spot on. One of the key things here is about drawing the debate back into the community and getting the community to take responsibility. And I use the cancer word community to mean whether science, healthcare professionals, patients, policymakers, to avoid this moral hazard problem. And, and it's an interesting macroeconomic term, moral hazard. And essentially what it means is moral hazard arises when an institution or individual doesn't take full responsibility for its actions, acts less carefully than it otherwise would, leaving another party to hold some responsibility for the consequences. And that's a really important point. And so this is about bringing the debate back into the community. And actually, if we don't make the decisions for ourselves, somebody else will make it for us. Secondly, there's a menu on the last page, and this is actually a, this is this has been in a sense endorsed. A lot of people have seen this from the commission, from who wrote the commission, and it's essentially a shopping menu for action, debate, and further research. 
And the reason I'm not going to go into any detail on that is the details all in there. I think we'd be very happy to take questions on it. But it really it is a menu for, de for debate and research. And the last thing to say is it's one also of education. I think we've, we've assumed for a while that this is something that only macroeconomists can deal with. But the, the reality is everyone's got to be involved in this. And it requires a major piece of education across the whole community going forward. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Richard. I'd like to, uh, last few minutes, give Michael a chance to reflect on Echo's role in this very large subject. Yes. Uh, as I pointed out already, the future healthcare in general, but particularly in cancer, is multidisciplinary, multiprofessional work. And what we see here is also a multiprofessional commission, which was sitting together, thinking on one aspect, which is affecting us all. Can we afford also in the future high-quality healthcare against cancer? What do we need to do? Which actions do we need to take? And that is exactly the approach ECHO is taking on a whole basis of subjects. So what we do is we bring together the different players, not only professionals, we bring together also the patients, together with professionals and policy uh, makers. And we think that's the only way to go, actually. And there is no use in simply not tabling subjects which are not very nice to talk about like costs of a treatment. I think they need to be tabled because otherwise we will experience disaster because decisions may be made which are not very well thought through. We had just a wonderful example in a session of the Onco Policy Forum, that is the framework we use on this conference to discuss those things, which was on a different topic. It was on clinical trials, which are very essential in Europe. And currently we work all in Europe under a legislation which is considered to be very bad. And the question is how did we come in such a situation? And the answer is very easy, we were not involved. And so we need to get involved in these things and that is the role which ECHO has. ECHO is the driving force for this in Europe and we take this very seriously to go to that. One more comment, the topic, the main topic of this conference for the scientific part is personalized medicine. That's also not a short-term topic, that is something for a long perspective. And we have seen uh, also in the Onco Policy Forum this morning a very nice example how personalized medicine has to do something with cost. We have seen by Professor Martin Picard uh, the data on breast cancer patients who, when positive for HER2, receive Herceptin as a drug. And she showed a slide that there are a large proportion of patients, about 70%, who did not need that drug because they were basically cured by the standard treatments, by surgical reception, by radiotherapy, and by standard chemotherapy. Then we have another 20% of patients who did not profit from the drug because they failed despite of the drug. So in there the tumors were resistant and we need new research to find out why the tumors are resistant against the drug. And then we have a proportion of patients who profit from this drug. And so what we need to do for the future, and that is what we discuss here in many of the scientific conferences during this meeting on a bunch of different tumors, 
what we need to do is we have to put the right treatment to the right patient. And that uh, includes a lot of research activities in biomarkers as well as improving the treatments. And it's not only on drugs. I can tell you that there are also in, for example, in radiotherapy, there are very expensive possibility to perform radiotherapy, for example, with particle therapy. And also here we will see that only part of the patients will profit from those expensive machines. And we have to identify that, and Peter just pointed out, robot-driven surgery is exactly the same point. So personalized medicine has a lot to do with drug. It is certainly a way forward, but we need a lot of research in that, and that research needs to be accompanied by assessment of cost. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for some very thoughtful remarks. And the panel would now be happy to answer any questions you might have. Hi, I'm Kristen Helm with Bloomberg News. Um, concern about rising healthcare costs is not new. Concern about rising cancer care costs is not new. So I'm struggling a little bit to understand why you're having this commission now and why the cancer community should be concerned now about these trends. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge the it's not new, and I agree with you in one sense, in the sense that you know going back ten years ago, you can see articles starting to be published about rising cancer costs. But, you know, particularly it was about healthcare costs a decade ago. You look at cancer specifically, and and, and the leaders in the policy field have been the USA, the NCI, and the Institute of Medicine. It wasn't actually until 2008 that the first you know hard pieces of data came out on the costs of cancer care also on productivity losses. And certainly in Europe, it's only in the last couple of years. So despite the fact that we've been talking about qualities and health technology assessment programs for the last decade, etc., when you talk about cancer care as an affordability issue across all domains, both the direct costs and also the productivity losses, that is a new phenomenon over the last two or three years. And I think what's happened is initially people have kind of gone for very, very single solutions to this. They haven't taken the broad view. What they've done is they've just taken one particular area and they focused on that. And as Michael said, you know, this is about a multidisciplinary team approach. This is the unique, this is the USP, if you like. This is about getting people from health economists, policymakers, patient professionals to look at this. And this was a very carefully structured policy review in terms of people directing people, to actually open things up and say, look, it's not just about one issue. You've got multiple issues affecting countries in different ways and different modalities in different ways. It's been too fragmented for too long. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the message. Michael? But your question was why it's happening now. And one answer is that we see an explosion of new possibilities, mm -hmm. which we didn't see before. If you look at new drugs how fast they are developing. If you look at new imaging and treatment technologies, there's explosion. It's going up exponentially, not linearly any longer. And that makes it absolutely necessary to think about now. From a scientific angle, it's also explosion of knowledge on the differences between different tumors. That's a good thing because it offers us a handle how to go, to go along with this. Can I make a comment too? Because uh, a little bit re reflecting on what um, you said, Rich, um, we have been prioritizing in the as as professionals for quite some time, and we've been we realizing we will not um, 
be able to pay uh, the, the cost if we don't do anything. The next step a couple of years ago was the, the health authorities, the hospitals, they, they demanded that we actually put the priorities down on paper, and we've been doing that for three, four years. And, and we realized that, don't, that won't help either, because we're talking single diseases, uh, breast or hernias or whatever. So I think among the professions, it's so evident now that we need to take the, I mean, one of the authors here, and he came r absolutely right, but we cannot only take this problem in my county or at my hospital. This, this problem has to be discussed uh, much broader than that. And that's what we're doing in ECHO, and what we can do by, by having this uh, commission. I'm Roxanne Nelson from Escape Oncology, and I'm from the U.S. And I'm not, obviously, from my accent. I haven't read the full paper yet, but I'm assuming this, the focus is on Europe, or on the, no, it's not, mm -hmm. okay. Because, I mean, I worked in healthcare before I escaped and became a writer. So I've been there, done that. You know, even going back, like she's, uh, the previous person said, you know, we've known about this for years. You know, I know 15 years ago we were struggling with this, turning patients away. You know, they would say, I used to work in newborn intensive care, and, you know, we'd get calls from the county hospital, you know, can you take one of our patients for yeah. exploding? And the doctors would say, no health insurance, we don't want them. You know, and a lot of these kids ended up dying. You know, so um, the situation in the U.S. is, you know, looking at all this, it sounds very nice and good, but, you know, I don't know what we can do. I mean, we have a for-profit healthcare system, as you're all aware of. It's about making money. And as far as the public services right now, there's a commotion about it, wanting to cut that money even further. And I quite honestly don't know how it's going to get more affordable or how there's going to be greater access. I mean, in my own family, my stepfather had cancer. He was prescribed a matinib. And his out-of-pocket cost, and he was on Medicare, was almost 2000 a month. And he said, but he was able to get it through the VA for free. So he's a veteran, you know, so he was lucky. But, you know, for the rest of us, um, I don't see any, like, really, I know there's not an easy solution, but a multiple disciplinary, a multidisciplinary solution or whatever, I don't see anything that we could do except if we dismantle the whole system and put it back up together again, and everybody there is like, socialized medicine, yeah, you know. It's like the horrors of Europe, you know, that, um, you know, and, and just like, I, I mean, I, I don't really know what my question is, but just maybe some feedback, because I don't really see it changing there anytime soon unless we sort of change the whole aspect, and it begins, like, the cost of medical education. You know, doctors come out of medical school, like, $300,000 in debt, so how much are they going to charge? You know, they've got to pay back their student loans, they've got to pay for malpractice, I mean, that's just one little minuscule reason for high prices. And it's the price of drugs. We pay more than anyone else in the world. Um, you know, insurance companies have all these fancy systems to charge people more. The new oral cancer drugs are more expensive, and they don't fall under the same insurance policy, so they have these policies so they could rip patients off more. You know, it's like I'm very jaded about this, you know. So when I see this session, it's like, well, how does this relate to my country? And I don't really see it. So 
So maybe you can give yeah. some options. Yeah, we all want. was saying it isn't a case of one size fits all. We're not calling for socialised medicine in every part of the world. No, I'm just using and, that as an example how people get so frightened there, ab you know. Absolutely. But the question here is engagement of the professional community in this discussion, every branch of that professional community, because currently that's not happening. And the, the worry in, for example, in the States is that the insurers will actually take over this argument, and that probably will not be in patients' interest. That's where systemic co-pays and out-of-pockets, as you mm. say, they are very high, and, and some patients are being selected out of the medical system. Um, but this problem we are talking here on this commission's report about will affect each health system in the world, even the most perfect one has to decide on how to handle this situation of so rapidly increasing new possibilities. So. And it will also, I, I agree with many things you said, um, so uh, it will also, this approach will also help in, in the US. It's independent on the system. It can of course not fix the system, but the situation we are facing in the scientific revolution is really affecting each single health system. Can I give an example that is both in, in, in our two disciplines? We take a patient with a rectal cancer, a low bowel cancer, and today very many of them throughout, throughout both America and, and Europe gets radiation before they, we do surgery. Uh, you could continue and just say, how do we give more radiation? How can we improve the radiation to get 2% better? As we could make the surgery a little bit better. This is needed now because the study we should do is when do you don't need to do radiation? When is surgery enough? Or when is surgery not necessary? When can we do only radiation? Both these alternatives will most likely be beneficial for the patient and they will be cheaper. So it's more to educate ourselves, the, 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 the professionals. The next study that should be done should not be a, a study that definitely will be more expensive for the, for the society, but it could be a study that we all will gain from, both financially and from a quality of life perspective. And this also ties into the need for comparative studies in amongst drugs, where you have two drugs which are trademarked and owned by different companies. Actually, we, in many settings, we don't know which drug is the most efficacious, but we need those comparative studies. But there are lots of IP issues surrounding the lack of doing those trials. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because when you look at the authors on that, we've got people like Neil Maripol, who you know headed up the NCI task force, Nancy Goodman-Brinker. So one of the first things they said they wanted is another opportunity to get the debate in the US about social justice. So 10 years ago, when American Cancer started to produce you know, voices of a broken system, that was quietly buried. And so that's about outcomes and the huge inequality in outcomes, depending whether you're insured or not, ethnicity, etc. So the first thing they said was simply, we want this debate opened up again about whether or not, as Americans, we're prepared to live with this unfairness in our society. Well, they're debating now, and it doesn't, it's not a pretty picture. Exactly. <laughs> and the second one was, of course, behavioural economics, because there's, there's incredible perverse incentives within the system, feed-for-service, etc., which produces 
and people know this, incredible cost exam, you know, expansions because that's behavioural economics spirit. Mm. And, and people like Atul Gawande have done research on this. You look at some of these medical services generally. If you could do, if you could make their service delivery 20% lower, which is sort of the average for some of the best performing hospitals, you'd, you'd immediately save 640 million US dollars in, in a year to bring the most expensive hospitals down to the best performing hospitals which are delivering at that level. Mm. It's not happening because of these perverse behavioural incentives that are built into the system. And so you'll find in this a lot of interesting solutions, but at the end of the day, you know, this comes down to it's a U, this is a US, it's such a unique system in a sense, mm. you know, this is, this is about helping and sharing things across the, the pond, but it's also about something which is very interesting in the US in terms of the debate. But a lot of the hospitals are for profit, so they're not very interested in um, reducing the, you know, the fees. I mean, they want to make money. So uh, yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had a we had a fantastic a fantastic uh, keynote lecture during the opening ceremony on Friday evening by James Bellini, and he was talking about the problems of demographics for the health system. That, by the way, is another reason why we have to talk now very much about this issue because the number of cancer patients is simply increasing very very rapidly, uh, but. What I want to refer to is, in his last slide, he said we have to talk much more about purpose. And the purpose of health systems is to provide health to patients. So that is one thing we have to talk about, purpose. And that is true for the United States, it's also true for Europe, and we have to go away from those secondary things. They are important, but the most important thing is to keep a sustainable, high-quality health system for patients. Okay, well, I think we've got time for one more quick question, and then we're going to have to wrap up on the phone. So. My name is Janet Frick, I'm a UK freelance. Um, I wonder, I'm afraid I haven't managed to read the paper, but I wanted to ask, how are you planning to take this forward in a coordinated fashion? What's going to be happening next? Richard. I give you the time. Well, two things to say. First of all, there are. Uh, let me, let me be honest, I mean, there are a lot of groups out there that are interested in this area. And now that this has come out, this is this is provide this will provide an impetus for these groups to start focusing. So, we, example, um, I'm working with the health uh, econ eh, economy. Yeah, can't say that economy econ economy unit at Oxford. <laughs> redoing all the figures for the cost burden of cancer across Europe because the OECD figures mm. are not correct. Mm. So we're doing a complete remodeling, reworking of the data there. But within this, there are lots of areas that people are very interested in from the surgical community, radiotherapy, imaging. And we're, what we're looking for, and I think this is something we need to probably discuss, and certainly I know the Oncopolicy people at ECHO are going to be looking at this, is how we then get people and invite them to start putting together programs and proposals. I can tell you just from the UK perspective, we're having a national meeting in about a month's time to talk about the economics of cancer, to try and just knock around proposals and potential programs and bring together the economists, policy makers, healthcare professionals, because often these people, you know, there's lost in translation. We have very little talk that goes on about this. It's, it's all down to do, you know, cost-effectiveness studies within clinical trials. But we're talking about something much bigger here. So that's... Okay, Michael, last few words. Yeah, um, 
the from from Echo's perspective, um, we definitely will continue and follow this up because it's one of the really burning issues. Um, how do we do that? Well, the first step was to bring together real the 24 uh, individual societies which are taking care of cancer in Europe under the umbrella of ECHO, and that is a very strong scenario. Then we added to this scenario, we added patient advisory uh, groups, which are in our patient advisory committee, and which are in all, uh, in all discussions involved on this, and which create the programs together with this. And the third step was to involve policymakers from a bunch of different institutions, maybe governments, maybe EC, but maybe also healthcare insurers. So uh, these, uh, I think that brought together really a scenario which can bring evidence-based advice how we can go along with this. And then we have, and that's why we have a press conference here, people like Richard and institutions like Lancet Oncology, which have a joint interest in bringing for one piece of evidence here, which also will be followed up on a scientific basis. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank the panel for all of their thoughts. Okay. The notable, um, sorry, Kate Kellen from Reuters. Um, the notable absence in the report and on the panel is any pharmaceutical industry input. Um, I would like to just get a couple of general comments about that, but also specifically one of the solutions in the in the raft of possible possibles is this idea of embedding economic health economics into clinical trials. The drug companies aren't going to do that, are they? Well, the pharmaceutical angle is a permission, and it's not by choice. Uh, I won't lie to you, it's, it was a very difficult number of conversations with many pharmaceutical companies that took place in the formation of this commission, and there was a notable lack of enthusiasm to engage. Now, that is a big problem, and it does need overcoming. Uh, without their engagement, a number of these issues will not be solvable, or not completely solvable. Richard, or Michael. Yeah, uh, I, I would like to add that even if those things are happening, we have to make sure that on the discussion level, on the debate level, we have them all involved. And I can tell you that we have them involved in our policy discussions in ECHO. Mm. I think, you know, as, you, as you well know, these days getting a decision from a particular, I might use industry, and it's not industry, there's multiple different facets and companies, they all have their own operating procedures. The problem is now, to engage in this sort of work, goes to the highest level, takes legal review, etc., etc. And I think there's a, there was a general nervousness about how they would be perceived to be involved and what they might say and how it might play off or not against what other individuals may say. And there are some... There are some pieces in this, I think if you're in the industry, you look at and say that's absolutely sensible and talk to others, which frankly will frighten them to death in terms of some of the business mm. models being talked about. Sure. That is the reality, and that's what we have to debate out there. But, so I, but, sorry, to, but yeah. as you said, that some of these problems are almost unsolvable without their engagement, mm. are they not? Yes, I would argue that some of the socioeconomic studies you've talked about here. I think it's the usual thing, you know, the bother, you know, as, a, as, a, as a peer group, let's talk about cancer community as a peer group, if policymakers, patients, the professionals, the regulators start saying, you know what, we need to see these studies embedded in there, then other groups then get on board. And I'm talking about the pharmaceutical industry as a specific tribe. 
So that it, it's, the engagement and peer pressure works in different ways. And I think that's how I would see it. But, and I go with Michael. I think we have seen engagement here. Mm. I think they will now see this. And I suspect that quite a few people think this is now a lost opportunity, actually. And hopefully they will then use it as a springboard for even stronger engagement as we go forward. And I'd, I'd echo that, Richard, actually. It's conversations I've had with pharmaceutical rep- representatives since this has been written have been a lot more engaging. Mm. And they feel that they really do need to play a part in this. And actually, so hopefully this is the catalyst. Yeah. And uh, you are absolutely right for the solution, but it's also, I, I want to point out, it's not only pharmaceutical companies which may have uh, disparate uh, interest to some of the solutions or some of the ways uh, shown. It's also uh, big hospital chains might have a completely different point of view on that. So all these players and all these interests have to be identified and have to be tabled. Okay, well, I'd like to thank the panelists for all of their thoughtful comments and thank you all for attending. Thank you. We now have some reflections from an EU perspective from Martin Seychelles, Deputy Director, DG Sanko. Here today to address such a large distinguished assembly of dedicated cancer scientists and medical professionals, as well as other significant stakeholders. It is certainly a challenge for me, as a representative of policy making, to speak to health professionals who face the hopes and pains of patients on a daily basis. However, Although our roles are very different, we share the common goal of decreasing the suffering of patients and their families. It is a fact that different stakeholders have a role to play in assuring affordable and accessible cancer care to those who need it. Particularly in these times of budget restrictions and austerity measures, it is becoming increasingly important that any intervention should be efficacious cost-effective and sustainable. In 2009, when the European Commission established the European Partnership for Action Against Cancer, the key word was partnership, stressing the importance of involving all relevant stakeholders, including researchers, policymakers, health professionals, patient and industry representatives, in any comprehensive approach to cancer policy. This, in turn, should lead to better use of the limited resources and avoid duplication of actions across the EU. But ultimately, and fundamentally, it should assist member states in achieving the goal of reducing the burden of cancer. It is here that we see the added value of EU-level cancer policy. Europe is characterized by worrying inequalities in cancer control and care, and these inequalities exist within, as well as between the EU member states. The Commission is making use of all the mechanisms at its disposal to build on national initiatives. Through the partnership, a comprehensive approach to the provision of cancer care is promoted, while respecting the fact that the organization and delivery of healthcare services remains primarily the responsibility of the Member States. All Member States should have comprehensive cancer plans in place. By including every aspect of cancer prevention and control, including prevention, screening, early detection, diagnosis, treatment, rehabilitation, palliative care and research, a comprehensive cancer plan can not only contribute to reducing the number of cancer cases and cancer deaths, 
It can also improve the quality of life of cancer patients, regardless of the resource constraints a country may face. By involving all member states in the partnership's work on national cancer plans, we should also be effective in addressing inequalities in cancer care across the EU. Beyond the partnership, however, please allow me to mention a few other areas of EU competence which have a direct impact on different aspects of cancer control, some of which were addressed in the study. The medical devices sector, for example, has an essential and increasing role to play in addressing today's and tomorrow's needs and challenges. The innovation capacities of the medical device sector, for instance in the field of imaging technologies, radiotherapy, surgery and diagnostics, have revolutionized the way healthcare is delivered. However, to fully exploit these innovation capacities, it is essential for all European patients, healthcare professionals, regulators and industry that this sector can count on an appropriate, reliable and predictable regulatory framework. A framework that is robust to technological evolution and scientific progress and that ensures the highest level of health protection. I do believe that the upcoming proposal for a revision foreseen for adoption by the Commission during the first part of 2012 provides us with a good opportunity to build this framework for medical devices in the EU and to provide European citizens with the modern, safe and high-quality healthcare that they are entitled to expect. As we have just heard, the issue of healthcare affordability ranks indeed very high on the agenda of EU policymakers. In times of strained public finances, health accounts for a large and growing share of public budgets, and this share is coming under increased scrutiny. At the EU level, we believe that Europe's patients are best served by a three-pronged approach to health system sustainability. First, we aim to foster the sharing of expertise and best practices between member states. As an example, there is the recently adopted Directive on Patients' Rights in Cross-Border Healthcare. Among other things, the Directive offers support to member states setting up European reference networks between healthcare providers and centres of expertise in the member states. Technical discussions are in a startup phase, but it is clear that cancer will be one of the areas which could benefit the most from the setting up of these European reference networks. Secondly, we also support European cooperation on health technology assessment with a view to develop more common approaches to doing comprehensive and fair health technology assessments. This way, knowledge from health technology assessment can be shared among the member states more easily by providing a common evidence base to be used in each country's assessments. Here I want to stress that the sustained and interdisciplinary involvement of the medical community for example, practitioners in the field of oncology, is crucial to ensure the further development of HTA. Third, we encourage member states to adequately reflect the contribution of health to the Europe 2020 agenda, which is a strategy aimed at promoting jobs and growth. Health is definitely not just a cost. The positive impacts from health investments should be highlighted at the EU level. The channels through which these impacts run are many, to name but a few. The uptake of scientific research and development, the creation of high-quality jobs, 
contribution to a healthy workforce and poverty reduction in the population. The European Commission is also working on a review of the Clinical Trials Directive. As the rules and requirements set by the Commission for evaluation, impact and consultations are very demanding, the proposal is foreseen for 2012. We are conscious and very aware that this time we have to get it right, and therefore the revision is being thoroughly prepared. We are guided by the question, what is required in terms of regulation to make Europe attractive for clinical research? At the same time, we want to keep our high level of protection of patient safety and the reliability of data generated in a clinical trial. The future procedure for authorizing clinical trials should be fast, efficient and pragmatic. <coughs> we have also to bear in mind that national aspects such as ethics and local aspects such as healthcare infrastructure and the qualifications of investigators cannot be avoided. I want to be clear too on another point. The Clinical Trials Directive is not about what clinical research has to be done, but how it has to be done in order to ensure patient safety and rights and the reliability of data. The directive cannot be used to prescribe researchers the type of research they should run on children, the elderly, rare disorders or whatever. Rather, it sets the framework how a clinical trial is performed. Finally, as most of you are aware, within the Europe 2020 strategy, the European Commission is committed to the need to address the rapid demographic change that is taking place and the significant social and economic impacts that will result. Indeed, the number of people aged over 65 in the European Union will almost double over the next 50 years, which means that there will be just two people of working age for each person over 65 compared with four today. One of the biggest challenges will be the treatment of chronic diseases and their prevention, in particular those affecting the elderly. For this reason, the Commission launched the European Partnership on Active and Healthy Aging at the beginning of this year with the aim of bringing together all actors active in health and aging related areas and to pool all available resources in order to bring about synergies. The partnership sets an overarching political objective to increase healthy life years by two by 2020. But more importantly, it envisages undertaking actions in the area of chronic diseases, including cancer, through research, development and innovation with a focus on prevention of disease, early diagnosis and screening. The partnership will also support developing innovative solutions for treatment strategies. The study presented today raises many more issues which will have to be considered in future actions of policymakers, whether at EU or at national level. Equally, however, professionals and their associations, industry and other players in successful cancer prevention and control will have their role to consider. In conclusion, I can only agree that cancer economics is complex and that we need further research to analyze this. Of course, such research must be based on good cancer information coming from cancer registries. In this framework, it is also important to identify best practices within a modern, comprehensive cancer care approach, given that cancer care is a multidisciplinary and multi-professional task that requires multimodal treatment and follow-up. As a final word, allow me to congratulate the organizers of this major event in oncology for the reference 
and I wish all participants every success for the future in their individual roles in advancing our common fight against cancer. Thank you. My thanks to all those who contributed to the podcast and to all of you for listening. Take care and tune in next month.